Hi, and welcome to episode six of Filmography Club. I'm Jason Cavanis. Today on the show, I welcome Becky Delius as we discuss Paul Thomas Anderson's sixth film, the post-World War II psychological drama, The Master. Released in 2012, it challenged and confounded many in the audience, myself included. It wasn't until a second viewing when I realized what a breathtakingly beautiful film that it is. And so it goes with many of PTA's films. And not in a fight club or sixth sense sort of way where a twist in the third act reveals a formerly hidden truth that changes the context of earlier scenes altogether. I simply needed more time to hang out with these characters and to debate with other viewers just what PTA was getting at, if anything at all. Anderson's trademarks are at full stretch in this film. The use of the oneer, the perfect instinct for casting, Oscar-worthy performances, and an unflinching, impartial eye in which the movie never explicitly tells you how you should feel about the characters. It simply observes and allows the viewer to decide for him or herself. Admittedly, I was puzzled after my first viewing, but now, having seen it a handful of times, I can say that I consider this to be among PTA's finer works, a movie that gets better with each viewing. I was happy to have Becky Delius in the studio with me. She and I go way back, and as you're about to hear, she's clever, erudite, and very charming. So without further ado... I bring you our talk about The Master. Hey, Jason. Hey, thanks for coming. I'm very happy to have you here. You know, I kind of said this before we sat down to do this, but I, listening back to the other episodes, you have these guests that are very, like, knowledgeable, and they work in film, and they understand film, and... Will Fox knows a bunch of like French words and you know I don't I don't really know any of that stuff so I was a little like why did he ask me to do this you know yeah. so there's a little bit of of like uh, imposter syndrome right now so okay. just be easy sure. on me because I have plenty of opinions but you know I don't have all the like technical uh, mojo mumbo jumbo that's okay to- <laughs> you're you're in the room Becky because you're funny and you're smart okay and, and you're, you're you're good at backing up your opinions not because you're some kind of a cinephile okay that's, perfect yeah so that's where we're at uh, all right full disclosure Becky and I go way back what 16 17 years I something mean, like yeah. that we're, we're, we're old old friends yes. and uh, so I'm, I'm glad to have you here this will be yeah. more like a hangout I'm super excited yeah so we're talking about the master today it's episode six of season one Paul Thomas Anderson's Sixth film, uh, the 2012 psychological drama, I guess, character yes, study. I think that's right. Uh, this is a weird one. I, like most of his movies, say three out of eight, I got and liked immediately. Mm-hmm. The other five, and this is one of them, I walked out of the theater baffled, knowing full well that the shortcoming is on my fault. The failure <laughs> to connect is, is is on me. So this is not for everyone. No. And, and I think that for me, though, I, I sat in the theater and I watched it and I was like, oh, fuck yes, you know, and my eyes were big and it was like, oh, like he gets it. He totally gets it. You know, talk, thinking about like PTA. But it's funny because I rewatched the movie last night and I watched it with Ryan Briegel, who hosts my fantasy funeral. And, and, and he had never seen it. And and he was just like, huh? Yeah, I don't know. That's how I felt. <laughs> That's so. how I felt. That's I, I remember distinctly turning to Will Fox after walking out of that theater and like, I don't know about that one. Right. And I think the reason why is because no one has an arc in this movie. Right. Everyone ends up exactly yes. the same person yes. at the end of the movie as they are at the beginning. Yes. Because, no one learns anything. Yes. Because, Jason, the master is about... 
the futility of being a human being. And that is what I love about it. Sure. Is that this is like such a nihilist exploration. And I just, I thrive on that, to be honest. Um, Maybe it's like my Germanic roots that I'm like, nothing matters, you know, kind of thing. But it it brings me great comfort. Um, I like Cormac McCarthy myself. I'm a fan of of, (laughs) of nihilism in fiction. So, yeah, I see where you're coming from. But truly, like, I think the master is is about futility. And I think that it's about this, like, this task, right? This, like, Sisyphus rolling the ball, you know, of your own trauma and baggage up a hill forever, Sometimes you make it all the way to the top, but always eventually like it's going to roll back down and crush you under under your own weight. And I think that you see that in the movie. And I think also like the master more so because PTA really relies on ensemble casts a lot. And so I think that this movie was unusual for a lot of people who were experienced, who were, who were, I'm sorry, who were expecting this kind, his sort of usual, like, merry band of pranksters on screen. And really what you have is Philip Seymour Hoffman and Joaquin Phoenix locked in a cage for two plus hours. And, and that is, and, and again, Joaquin Phoenix isn't for everyone. I think most people generally kind of love Philip Seymour Hoffman, but, yeah. but there's so much Joaquin in it. And not just Joaquin, but Joaquin in like such an altered state, such an animalistic altered state where he's barely articulate. Both of his eyes aren't even usually open at the same time. He's hunched over. I think it's really difficult to watch and it's difficult to digest. But I think that that's you know, I love kind of seeing that like play out on on the screen. I love seeing those and and Joaquin Phoenix. You know, however you feel about him, he's a great actor. Like he, he's a really good actor. And and I say that as somebody who studied theater and who, you know, he really like takes on. He embodies it. I mean, almost to a painful degree. I mean, watching him stoop over in that movie a lot, I think is is hard to watch, you know, the physicality of it. And I think it's supposed to be hard to watch. Yeah, I think so too. And from just doing basic research on this thing, apparently he really does have some sort of yeah, a messed up shoulder. Right. And he just kind of leaned into it. And he never really talked to Paul Thomas Anderson about the choice that he was going right. to make to do that. But PTA just saw it happening that first day. And he was like, okay, I'm just not even going to say anything. I don't want to break the spell, but I like what he's doing there. Yeah. And yeah, I, I, I thought it I thought it worked. Uh, yeah, he's a fantastic actor. And you can't talk about a Paul Thomas Anderson movie really without talking about a one or that really long take. Usually they're technical. There's a lot of moving parts, a lot of actors trying to hit cues. In this one, it's just that processing scene where they t- he tells him not to blink mm-hmm. and he it, the camera just stays on him for the longest time without mm-hmm. cutting away and the range of emotion that he goes through mm-hmm. during that processing what Scientologists call auditing mm-hmm. in this film right. it's called processing yeah. I guess we should back up just a moment and talk about just the broad overview of the movie we're mm-hmm. again like I mentioned before we went on we're not going to go through this movie beat sure. by beat that's yeah. boring but okay most of the film takes place in 1950 mm-hmm. that's right yeah post war our hero, or at least our lead, our protagonist, mm-hmm. not the titular guy, by the way. The the, the titular master is uh, got second billing on this movie, Philip Seymour Hoffman's right. character, yeah. Lancaster Dodd. Mm-hmm. But uh, Joaquin Phoenix's character is a guy named Freddie Quill. He was a seaman in World War II, and he suffers from what we now know to be post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm-hmm. Shell-shocked, I believe they called right. it, even back when I was a little kid. But... Um, with a healthy dose of, you know, childhood trauma and, and, and sexual substan- yes. dysfunction. Right. And substance and alcohol yeah. abuse. Yeah, he's an alcoholic yeah. and he's got very deep seated sexual issues, which we will definitely get into in a little bit. Really, he sort of he just falls in with this. Uh, 
I, I want to avoid using the C word, but I mean, cult is really what it is at its at its basis. Mm-hmm. It's it's what they the actors all thought of it as a movement because really it's kind of how a movement becomes a cult in a way. The movie's not even about that. Mm-hmm. The way Boogie Nights is not about porn. It's mm-hmm. just kind of the setting. Right. This movie's not really about the cult, mm-hmm. but it is the setting for it. it. Most of the characters in it are members. Right. And I think that what is interesting is that they do set it, you know, in 1950. And that's the same year that um, the Dianetics book was written and that the the movement sort of started. And, and it's interesting because in interviews, Philip Seymour Hoffman kept saying, this isn't a movie about Scientology. It's really not. This is a movie. And, and it kind of was like, uh, but but I think he's right. This movie is about people looking for something beyond themselves. And that's not unusual. I mean, that's really like the whole reason organized religion <laughs> exists. You know sure. what I mean? Yeah. Like, that's not crazy. But I think you're right. Like, it creates a convenient cradle, I think, for this whole sort of interchange between the two characters to play out. But it's not it's not really about that. It's just creates sort of an interesting backdrop. So, yeah, you know, another thing that I think so. Well, I'll let you go ahead and continue if you want to continue. No, 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 please, yeah, I just so talking about him coming back from the war and it struck me like so. One of the first scenes that we see, you know, after he is sort of like debriefed, you know, they're like, here's all the things that you can do in your new life as a civilian, you know, and he's working in this fancy department store, which I want to say, I'm really sad that department stores are not that fancy anymore. I was a little bummed out about that. Yeah, they like, don't have sales girls walking around. Yes. Showing like, off them. Yes. $49.99. Like, I loved it. What yeah. a deal. So anyway, um, but, you know, he's there and he, he gets this job as like a, a photographer, right? Like taking family portraits, I love that, that sequence with all the pictures. It looks exactly like stuff that hung yes. up on grandpa's wall yeah. back in the day. <laughs> Absolutely. And so it's kind of like he's taking pictures of other people's families. He takes a picture of this man that he ends up having this altercation with who, you know, he says, is this for your wife? And it kind of like triggers something in him when he says yes. And it's like, you know, when Friday comes back from, you know, the idea that he's it's the ultimate rubbing of his nose and the fact that he is a man without a family, a man without a love, a man who really has no good memories aside from the ones of Doris, you know, his kind of long lost love, which also pain him immensely. And here his first job out of the war is to help others capture memories to give to the people in their life that he doesn't have. And so that I thought was just like the greatest irony, you know. It's like great. I get to look at happy families and sure. happy couples and all day long. Off, you and know? He deliberately like fought that. He started that fight. Yes, it, he did. <laughs> Freddie's kind of an asshole. He's, he is. He's very much an asshole. Absolutely. He's fun to watch. He's a scoundrel. I that's, mean, that's I wouldn't Lancaster even. Called. You know, it's funny because. A scoundrel to me suggests that there's some intelligence behind your actions. And I think he is just like, he's all like id, right? I I was about to say that he's walking id. Yeah. I mean, he's just like, he's just an erect penis walking around getting into fights. And that's kind of it. And, and. Of course, you know, when he first comes upon the Aletheia and, and Lancaster Dodd is there and he kind of stows away on the ship. And and when he the next day is walking around and he happens upon those group of people that were doing the they were listening to the tape, you know, of, of Dodd. And he's talking about, you know, you're not an animal, you know, and he's as he's listening, he scrawls out like, do you want to fuck on a piece of paper and gives it to the woman sitting across the table? So it's right. like not 
really soaking in. No. Like he's he's not like a sophisticated mind, you no. know. And even later on in the film, when he's been with the group for a good long while, he he's still not taking it in. He mm-hmm. still just immediately resorts to violence when challenged in any way. Absolutely. And something too, I kind of wanted to touch on when you were talking about his shoulder is that that pose also that he has with his arms out a lot, stooped, bent over with like his hands on on his back, which where his kidneys would be, right? My aunt's second husband, who I have a few like very foggy memories of, he was also like an intense alcoholic. And in pictures that I've seen of him, he had that stance, that sort of, and he was sort of the same wiry build. And so kind of stooped over with like his hands out on his hips, on, on his back. So I just, seeing that in the movie, you know, kind of connected back to, to just feeling really feeling like Joaquin Phoenix really made some choices as an actor there that really served him well in terms of I mean you can give a person period clothes you can style their hair you can you know you can do all of these things but it's another thing to to really change the way that you carry yourself to to how someone would have carried themselves in a different time and I think that that's I don't know. I just think that that was um, really intelligent on his part to do that. Yeah. Yeah. He's a fantastic mm-hmm. talent. This your ship? I'm its commander, yes. Where's it going? New York City through the canal. You're a seaman. Yeah. How'd I get down here? You're acting aggressive because you drank too much alcohol. No, I don't think so. You told me you're an able-bodied seaman and you're looking for work. I told you? Yeah, will you have any? Why all the skulking and sneaking? Work cannot be that difficult to come by. Well, it depends on when you're ready to go. You shouldn't work in your condition. No, I can work. You're aberrated. I'm not. Know what that means? No. You've wandered from the proper path, haven't you? These problems you have? (laughs) I don't have any problems. I don't know what I told you, but if you have work for me to do, I can do it. You seem so familiar to me. Yeah. What do you do? I do many, many things. I am a writer, a doctor, a nuclear physicist, a theoretical philosopher. But above all, I am a man. Hopelessly inquisitive man, just like you. (laughs) Well, I'm sorry if... If I got out of hand last night, it's cold and those. Don't apologize. You're a scoundrel. <laughs> and as a scientist and a connoisseur, I have I have no idea the contents of this remarkable potion. What's in it? Secrets. Paul Thomas Anderson's uh, reoccurring themes are on full display in this movie. The whole making a surrogate family for Mm -hmm. oneself. Right. uh, The whole father-son dynamic. Yes. uh, Which is very much on display here. It's almost like a... I want to say... We're tempted to say master-apprentice, but it's more master and pet in a way. Right. I mean, Joaquin is almost 
his dog mm-hmm. in a way. He, the way he commands him around. The scene at the beginning when they're on the boat, it's the the, the wedding, and he stands up and he is so charismatic mm-hmm. as, as Lancaster Absolutely. died. And he tells the story with the dragon. The right. dragon is Joaquin. The dragon is Freddie Quill. Hmm. When he talks about, here comes this dragon and it's mm-hmm. out of control mm-hmm. and it's got blood dripping from its fangs and I have a lasso and mm-hmm. I wrap it around and now it's on a leash. Right. And now now I can take it for a walk and, yeah. and all that stuff. And the camera keeps cutting back to Freddie and he's not getting it, but he's got this need to dominate and Freddie has this need to be dominated. He, right. he is very much a submissive. He right. needs to be told what to do. Right. That whole scene was just metaphor. Yeah, and I think also when he when he does the first processing with Freddie and they it was very brief and then he says, Okay, that's enough for today and he's like, No, 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 keep going, keep going. You know, it struck me that like this is a person who probably didn't have a father ever really ask him any questions about himself. And even though these questions are kind of perverse and strange, you know, do you linger at bus stations for, you know, for pleasure, whatever, like the idea that someone is taking interest in him, the idea that someone cares about his experiences or cares about what he thinks. And also I think that, yeah, I mean, I think you're right. Like he, he is the, and I'll, I'll kind of talk about this later as we sort of move through the movie, but I think when he sees Freddie, he's like, this is the perfect guinea pig for this because I'm not sold the Dodd believes in the process i think he believes that he can make other people believe in the process when he sees freddie i think he thinks like here is this just like ball of clay like here is is the perfect test tube here is the perfect guinea pig that if it works i'm gonna be able to figure it out because i can fix him right like he's the perfect person to experiment on and so i think he freddie being around really excites him because he's the perfect person to try out you know all of this stuff yeah the whole back and forth the wall window wall Mm -hmm. window just back and forth again it's like a pet on command right go do the thing now do that now do it again and you do do get the sense during that scene that he probably he had never done that with a person before because I don't know that he would have found someone willing to do it for that long and to that extent. You Probably know? not. Yeah. Freddie was all in. He was all in. <laughs> he was definitely all in. Yeah, the window thing, back to the, the, the pet thing. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just weird. Someone pointed it out to me and I just couldn't unsee it when I was watching it this time. Even the scene where Freddie gets out of jail and they're back at that house in Philadelphia and he greets him with open arms yeah. like they had the big blow up yeah they get down on the ground and start wrestling right. like like i do with my bull right. mastiff yeah absolutely and then the whole when he digs up his life's work and they're walking away and he just tells freddie stop right yeah and then he just waits and looks around He's yeah like, okay now let's go but you know if you think about it like a lot of people that came out of the service during the time people that come out of the service in the military now i think it's hard to adjust sometimes to civilian life because you have such this rigorous sense of discipline and order, and there's always a commander. There's always somebody above you telling you what time to get up in the morning, what time to go to sleep at night, like what you're doing this hour, this hour, this hour. And I think that a lot of, and, and also people that are in prison, right? Like it's hard for them sometimes to adjust on the outside because you're constantly being told what to do. And while that can be frustrating, I think at first, eventually you get used to it and you start to rely on it as a way to, to sort of conduct your life. And I think that it's right that... F- Freddie needs Lancaster as much as Lancaster needs Freddie. Absolutely. It's a sort of a love story, too. The music, uh, this is Johnny Greenwood's second film with yeah. him, and his score is very sweeping. It's very period-specific. It right. sounds like something that was recorded back in the back in 1950. Yeah. And it's very uh, sappy, lots of uh, sweeping strings and stuff. It, it sounds like romance music. And hell, at the very end, Lancaster serenades Freddie explicitly. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Do you know about that song? Do you know the history of that song? I don't know about the history of that yeah. song, but I'm definitely going to get into the music in a little bit. Okay. Oh, go ahead. What do you... Yeah. He sings this song called I'd Like to Get You on a Slow Boat to China, and that was written in 48. And so it kind of became this very classic pop standard, and every crooner from then until even now has recorded that song. But the guy who wrote it, his name was Frank Loser, and his daughter wrote a biography about him in the 90s. And she said that, this isn't a quote, I'd like to get you on a slow boat to China was a well-known phrase among poker players, referring to a person who lost steadily and handsomely. My father turned it into a romantic song, placing the title in the mainstream of catchphrases. The idea being that a slow boat to China was the longest trip one could imagine. And I think that's it, because on both levels of the meaning, Quell is a constant source of inspiration, testing, experimentation for all of Dodd's gambles about the process and his theories. You know, he may not even believe them himself, but he's willing to find out if they're worth belief. Um, and I think that Quell is the perfect person for this because proven time and time again, he's not capable of moving past those animal behavior and instincts. Two steps forward, he's always going to take three steps back. But also I think the metaphor being a very long trip, it's the one that Dodd thinks anyone who goes under the process will be on, right? Like a trip without end. And I think when he sings that to him in this really moving moment, and, you know, Freddie's sitting there almost with this, like, beatific look of ecstasy on his face. He loves right? it. He loves he's it. He's needed. He is. He, he knows is, it. You know, his eyes are the fullest that we see them, the most open that we see them. But unfortunately, at this time, they're the milky, clouded eyes of somebody who is probably dying, right? Like, he's probably got, like, kidney failure at this point, you know? I mean, yeah, this he's is been not, drinking that potion yeah, for a long time. Yeah, he's been drinking, like, jet fuel and paint thinner for 20 years yeah. or whatever, you know? So he's not, like, the healthiest dude around. But he's sitting there, and he's in ecstasy hearing this. And I think for Dodd, he's like, stay with me because you're the only person that I'm ever gonna fully get to sort of explore my theories on you know so i mean it's it's a little twisted from him but you know i think there is an an admiration from dodd as well yeah that's a really that's a really heavy yeah dodd likes him dodd likes the guy a lot it's it's genuine and you you can tell i don't think that he's he's bullshitting he bullshits a lot in the movie Mm -hmm. and when you say that he's not truly a believer Maybe. The movie doesn't ever explicitly make that. The one moment I thought might have been a tell was when Laura Dern's character mm, yes. sits down mm-hmm. and says, hey, on page 13, I noticed a change. Whereas before, when you the first book says that we're supposed to recall our past lives, here you say try to imagine. You right. replace the word recall yes. with imagine. Right. And really, I think that comes down to, no, I want to make it as broad as possible so that I can rake in more money. Right. Yes, absolutely. The, and he pitches a fit he's very calm except for a few scenes in the movie right he's a hypocrite when he's being questioned he acts he like can't he's handle it ubermensch he right. acts like he's the thinking man the, mm-hmm. the dignified man at the top of mm-hmm. the animal kingdom mm-hmm. sitting perched above it looking down on right. it. right on the other end of the spectrum you've got somebody like quill who just if he can't drink it or fuck it he has no use for it right. and uh but he pitches a fit when the guy challenges him on his beliefs during the processing scene when mm-hmm. he, he calls him a pig fuck. Yeah. That was just unnerving. Who is that guy, by the way? He's a great actor, and it strikes me, it, it's really I've, sad. I Both of those actors in that scene are passed away now. He was in really? the first season. I can't remember his name off the top of my head. You know what? I've got it Because right I was like, I when I saw him, I was like, I know that guy. Who is that guy? 
He was in season one of Silicon Valley on <gasps> HBO. That's right. And then he, he was, passed away. He was the like sort of, um, you know, he was like the tech CEO guy. The weirdo. Yes. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's yeah. Right. And then they, he died in real life. So they replaced that's his character right. with just the female version yeah. of exactly him. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Uh, he played a character named John Moore. Oh, yeah. man. From, yeah. yeah. I was yeah, trying I to remember. Liked, I've enjoyed the two things I've seen him in. Anyway. Yeah. So anyway, Lancaster just flips his shit when anyone challenges him remotely. He's just not used to it. Right. And to be fair, it's almost like going to someone's church and just in the middle of a sermon, raising your hand and saying, hey, wait a minute. How were the stars made after the plants? Yeah. Have you not heard of photosynthesis? Yeah, I love. But I, what I love in that scene is like, excuse me. Excuse me. And they're trying Excuse to ignore me. him. I'm, like that is so perfect. You know what I mean? Because because you 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 builds that tension where you're like, okay, what's going to happen here? Is it just going to go on forever? They're getting like it's like so it's some tense. yeah it's it's so tense. At some point, he's going to you know respond to it. But you know, I think that you know Philip Seymour Hoffman said over and over again, I'm I'm not playing Al Ron Hubbard. I'm not playing Al Ron Hubbard. And I think that's right because if you've ever watched any old video of L. Ron Hubbard, he is nowhere near as charismatic as Lancaster Dodd Not at all. Like, he, at all. Yeah, you and know? you could easily do it. Imp- it's a very pat impression that you could do of L. Ron Hubbard. Mm-hmm. The way he speaks, mm-hmm. the way he carries himself, right. it's very specific. Right. And that is not what Phil Seymour Hoffman is doing I mean, at all. physically, they do look similarly, sure. but the personality is, is very, very different. But there are ribbons of sort of, I think, building up to the seeds of Scientology in this movie, right? Right. Like, for instance, um, after the scene that you're talking about in the New York penthouse, right, where he comes, that guy comes in and he's like, excuse me, excuse me, like, this is all bullshit. And Philip Seymour Hoffman calls him a pig fuck, um, not a pig fucker, a pig fuck. Right. Um, <laughs> I'm like, is that, was that improvised? Because that was brilliant. Yeah. Um, but later that night when his wife, Peggy, played by Amy Adams, um, was saying, you know, enough of this. Like, why are we defending our beliefs to these people? We should be on the attack. We should be on the offense. And that's really now how Scientology operates. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, fair game doctrine, I believe it's yes, called. Yes. Yes. It was public. They admitted it at, in public. You could go and look at their their uh, at their books. And it explicitly said that until I think the late 60s. And they eventually... They say that they rescinded that, yeah. but they've, I mean, come on. Right. I mean, allegedly, by the way, they're yeah. very litigious. So <laughs> this is all allegedly. If I say anything that might look bad on the Church of yeah. Scientology, it's it's all allegedly. Right. So, but I think that that is kind of, and also going back to one of the final scenes where Dodd is talking to Freddie and they're in England and Peggy, who doesn't like Freddie, right? Like she's not his biggest fan. And she says, this is something you either do for a billion years or not at all. That's straight out of Scientology. And that's straight too. out of the billion year the contract, right? The, the, the Sea Org members. They're, they're slave labor force. Right. Allegedly. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. You sign a billion year contract yeah, with these folks. Yeah. And and I was kind of, and I knew that, so I knew about the billionaire contract. And then I was sort of like, but where, where does that come from? Um, and I was like doing a little reading online, and so I found this information that you know the Sea Org is kind of loosely based around like a naval, sure, you know, it's all thing. trying to pretend to be very official, very and like official, endorsed. right? Yeah. And so there's a theory, I guess, from from somebody who studies religion and modern religions and things that. Um, Sea Org is actually modeled after loyal officers um, who were part of the Galactic Confederacy who overthrew the intergalactic tyrant Xenu, mm-hmm. which is canon. Trillions of years clearly, ago. Clearly, you yeah. know. Yeah. So I just think that's so fascinating. 
Ryan asked a question last night, which I didn't actually know the question to, which is that there's been a lot of like expose around Scientology in the last like 10 years or so, and especially around the Sea Org and some of the conditions that people allegedly say that they lived in or were forced to live. And I wonder if that even really exists anymore. Almost certainly. Yeah. Allegedly. Because <laughs> the guy that runs Scientology now, the new L. Ron Hubbard, uh, Ms. Ca- Miscavige, David, David, David Miscavige, Miscavige, yeah. his wife hasn't been seen in public in years. That's right. So, And then I had heard that That's as well. That's why Leah Remini is no longer in the church, because she dared ask, hey, where's Susan or whatever right. her name is. Yeah. And she hasn't been found? I don't know. There's plenty of, if you guys want to look into it, there's plenty of stuff out there on it now, but I, I don't know the answer to that yeah. question. So not to get too off in the weeds with Scientology, because again, I, I don't want that to overshadow like what this movie is about, because again, just like Boogie Nights isn't about porn, like, this isn't really about Scientology. I think it's just about a person in a position of authority and whether that authority is real or given to somebody about them and how they use that authority and also about a desperately broken human being and i think really the essential theme which i kind of touched on of futility but also like is progress possible is it possible to change does anybody ever really change right yeah it's like we touched on at the beginning everyone's pretty much in the same spot they're in at the end at the beginning as they are at the end Mm -hmm. with the exception freddie does have one pretty significant change He's no longer chasing Doris at the end. Right. Once he goes to her mother's house and he finds out she's truly that gone, she's, that she's truly gone, and yeah. there is no going back. Then he goes off to England to see if there's a chance. Can we talk about? There's this definite shift in the movie where up and from the beginning until about a third of the way through, it feels very linear. It feels like you understand the story that is being laid out before you. Everything feels believable-ish, right? Everything makes sense. And then things start to get a little surreal. And so there's that scene where they're at the house, uh, Laura Dern's home, and a roving, a roving and then yeah. the scene shifts, and then they're all, the women are nude. And it occurred to me last night, I think when I first watched it, back when the movie came out, that I assumed they were actually nude. And then on a second viewing, or I guess it's my third viewing, I was like, I don't think they are actually nude. I had the same epiphany today. <laughs> I, at first, I thought they were just saying something about patriarchy and religion. Right. That's what I thought it was. But it's the same song. And the women haven't had time to remove their clothing. And there's no clothing lying about anywhere. Right. That's Freddie Quill. Um, that's him yes. imagining the women naked yes. because he's sexually depraved. Yes. So that's exactly what I, I took from right. it. Um, and so that was something that I really was like, oh, no. Also, I just want to talk about the Merkins that those all those women were wearing that were like, <laughs> those were like carpets. Like, those were straight up toupees. I want to yeah. say that that might have been like a late edition. I haven't read the script, but I, I'm wondering if PTA was just like, I don't know, I have a crazy idea. And they're like, how many Merkins can we scare up? You know, like, <laughs> when, whatever. And they're like, well, we can't find any Merkins, but we found these men's toupees. And they're like cutting them into <laughs> Vs or whatever. Because those were, that was was like some thick bush like that doesn't grow like that guys like, I'm sorry. you know what i mean <laughs> it's yeah. just like a guy directed that yeah. yeah it was unreal this is what it would look like was, in 1950 it was unreal it was crazy <laughs> it was literally insane um but yeah so so there's that but then also you know he's in the movie theater and you know, it comes out with a phone and it's Lancaster and he's like He's found him. He's found somehow. him and how somehow and, and it's it's almost like is this is this happening? And so there was a part of me watching it that's like 
are we have we sort of entered into Freddy's insanity and like it, are we kind of stuck in this place where we don't really know what's reality we don't really know did he go to England how did the fuck did he get to England like this guy doesn't have any money he doesn't have any resources you know like the Lancaster paper I want that I want that information you know what I mean sure because it it didn't bother me until Ryan started asking questions about it See, you know questions like that don't bother me at all <laughs> That's that's fine. The fact is, he got there. He did get there. So not so much. How did he get to England? I'm like, okay, I can. Uh, okay, you know, back then, what you could like stow away on a ship or something and get there in a few. And weeks. we know Freddie's. We know Freddie's willing to do yeah. that, but the finding him in the movie theater thing was was super bizarre. It you know, was. He's in this movie theater by himself. He's sleeping. Like a like a waiter comes out with like a phone on a silver tray or whatever. You know, it's just, it's like also there weren't cordless phones back then, right? Like how long, long is that cord. telephone cord? Yeah. yeah, it was weird. <laughs> I'm not sure. I don't know if Lancaster found him or, and, and if so, how? I have no idea. Because it's almost like when, he, it think and in, in, in that same sort of, if you are, wondering about that when he gets to Lancaster in England they don't have this it's not as if Lancaster's like thank you for coming he's like you know it's almost like oh you're here if you don't stick it out this time I'm never gonna see you again you know like it 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 struck me as if Freddie had just shown up without any invitation which makes me wonder if he was actually invited right Uh, when he gets to the front the receptionist lady asks if he's you know I'm here to see the the master is he expecting you and he said he should be something like that yeah maybe I I can't remember yeah yeah so there were there are questions about that so I want to talk about the music in this movie. Okay, and I don't mean do. the I don't mean the Johnny Greenwood score, which is pitch perfect. It's fine. It's great. But uh, I think the key to understanding Freddie's story in this film it's explicitly told through the music. Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson. I didn't realize it until I started this podcast that his musical cues are so on the nose. Mm. He doesn't use obvious musical cues necessarily, mm-hmm. but if you pay attention to the lyrics in a particular song, it's laying out what that scene's about. And this movie, it's to a T. So at the beginning, uh, we've got Doris, who is Freddie Quills, the, the girl he's kind of chasing after this entire movie, mm-hmm. his long lost love. When they're separating, one of them's about to go away. She sings, uh, don't sit under the apple tree mm-hmm. with anyone else but me. Right. And it's a song about fidelity when one of them's about to leave. I wrote my mother. I wrote my father. And now I'm writing you too. I'm sure a mother, I'm sure a father, and now I'll want to be sure, very, very sure of you. Don't sit under the apple tree with anyone else but me, with anyone else but me, with anyone else but me. No, 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 don't sit under the apple tree. Mm-hmm. And he sticks to that. It cuts to him with the department store job when he starts the fight with the guy. And as the sales girl is walking around showing off the, the mink coat for forty nine ninety nine, uh, actually kind of selling her body in a weird way. Right. The song Get Thee Behind Me, Satan. Yeah. It's a song about mm-hmm. putting temptation behind you. Right. And then they go and they make out for a little bit. And he's... He clearly he's a horny guy and he wants to have sex with her. He asks her out that night, but then it cuts to him passed out at dinner with her. And I right. think that he did that probably on purpose in order to stay true. Do you true. think so? I do. 
I don't know. I, I think might, I think I'm maybe I'm reading too I, much into the musical think, cues here, but I don't think that he is that disciplined. I mean, well. this is a person who all evidence tells us that this is like he, this person has zero self control, and I think that I just don't see him. Like, I think if he could have had sex with that woman, he would have. I mean, if we're thinking about even when he's on the ship and he asks that woman if she wants to fuck, like. He's seeking it out. Sure. You know? But he never – well, we'll get to this. Uh, Let's let's put a pin in that. (laughs) Okay. So I'm going to come back around to that. All right. So the next song that's sung in the movie is the scene that we just talked about with the Mm -hmm. nude women. It's Lancaster singing, So We'll Go No More A-Roving, which is – Is that like an old English? Is that from like Canterbury Tales or something? It certainly sounds like it. (laughs) But I believe it's Lancaster kind of, in a way, singing that to Freddie. It's basically him saying, hey, you found me. I found you. We don't need anyone else. That's what hmm. that feels like to me. And then when it cuts to Freddie, he's imagining this these women naked. So he's on a totally different page. Right. I think that was meant to show where they're at in their thinking, where Lancaster's like, this is good. We've got this thing going. Let's keep it this way. And then we see it through Freddie's eyes, and he's just picturing these women nude. So I just quickly, I just looked up this roving song. Okay. And this was a poem written in... 1817. And according to this author, it describes the fatigue of age conquering the restlessness of youth. So that's very on brand for the two of them. Yeah. Okay. So then we get the motorcycle scene where Freddie fucks off. He steals the motorcycle. (laughs) But what he's doing, (laughs) he's going back to Doris. Yes, he is going back to Doris. He's, he's, He's thought about it long and hard. And as he's driving away, we get a song called No Other Love. And it, it's a song about devotion to a one particular person. Right. And I think that it works on two levels here. Maybe I'm reading too much into this, but it's Freddie to isn't Doris. That the, isn't that the point of the podcast is to read too much into these movies? Yeah, it kind of is. <laughs> okay. But it's Freddie to Doris, but it's also Lancaster to Freddie. Oh, okay. Because it keeps cutting back to those close-ups with right. Lancaster, and he's he's not a, a, a happy at all. He's very concerned about, about right. Freddie driving off. And just disappearing over the horizon with his motorcycle. So then, at the end of the film, we're back in, uh, well, towards the end of the film. We're in England, and when Dodd serenades Freddie with Slow Boat to China, which has got lyrics in it that sort of evoke, I want to keep you to myself. Right. I mean, I know that it meant mm-hmm. the, the gambling sure, thing, but sure. here it's like, I want to keep you yeah. to myself. Yeah. Freddie is a sailor. He's born to just live free and to just go where the winds take him. So he decides, I can't, I want to stay. I'll stay here and take pictures for you. But the subtext there is, I don't buy any of this stuff, though. Yeah. I think Freddie gives up, too. I think that at that point in the film, I mean, because I think physically he looks old. He looks sick, right? Like, his skin is kind of hanging off of him in this scene. Like, we get the sense that he has aged. And I think that Freddie gives up. And I think that he, I think that the whole movie, he's sort of fighting against his intrinsic nature, which is to be better than what he is. And I and I, I think ultimately he resigns himself to the fact that he doesn't really have any interest in being any different than how he is, yeah. you know? And I think that the whole time Dodd wants him to sort of be more than an animal, you know, like wear a suit, like be something he's not. And I think he's just like, as much as it hurts me, because I think he loves Dodd and he wants to be part of that family. Absolutely. He's just like, I can't do it. It's not going to work. And and maybe that might be the most sophisticated kind of thought 
that he has, which is that instead of just instinctually doing it or impulsively doing it, he's kind of like thinks one step ahead finally and is like, it's not going to work. You know, I'm never going to be that. I don't want to be that. Well, that brings us to the very end of the movie and the last musical cue we get as we go to credits, we get a flashback to Freddie from the beginning of the film when he's on the beach at Guam. Yeah. And he lies down next to the sand woman that they've made and the, the song Changing Partners comes on and that song is a, it's a waltz and it's about waltzing and changing partners mm-hmm. but of course there's also it's just about never being satisfied right. with, with who you have and yeah. about just splitting up and going your separate ways and so at the very end even though he did kind of get over doris in a way or at least he's no longer hanging his hat on that and right. seeing that as a goal that he has to work towards yeah oh also excuse me let me back up before we get to that again the only change freddie goes through at the end once he realizes he doesn't have doris to chase after anymore and things don't pan out at the cause with Lancaster, the first thing he does is he goes and gets laid. Yeah. For well, the first time in the whole movie. He goes to a bar. He goes to a pub. And then he... <laughs> a pub, <laughs> which is a bar, uh, parentheses. And yeah, and then he goes and he finds a woman and has sex with her. Yeah, he, he indulges that. And that's the only time he's done that in the movie. Yeah. He, he does. He's sexually depraved, but he's really sexually frustrated. He's really just... He's not getting any... Right. I wouldn't want to have sex with him. No. He's like insane. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you his know? breath smells like ethanol and paint thinner. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Like, w- like, yeah, no way. If that dude like came up to me, I'd be like, uh-uh. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you. I'm good. I'm real good. You know? Holla elsewhere, <laughs> Freddie. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So anyway, I mean, all jokes aside, I think people, obviously you and other people walked out of that movie thinking like, Ugh. like there's no there's no resolution, you know, I mean, really, there's no resolution. You just see no. you sort of see the crash of these two machines kind of. And then you just sort of see the aftermath of it, which PTA does a great job of. There's there's several shots of the wake of a ship going through the water. Yeah, and those that, little interstitials he does. Those right. Are beautiful. And those are really beautiful. But I think also to really drive home the metaphor of we're kind of all living our lives as these huge ships going going through calm water and then you look behind you for most of us there's some like foam and waves and yeah there's turmoil back there you know i mean there's like stuff back there and so you can either gaze at it and find beauty in it and find some meaning in it or you just kind of keep drinking and fucking <laughs> you yeah. know, <laughs> yeah. Keep doing what created all that turmoil. Yeah, in the keep, exactly. Keep doing what created all that turmoil to begin with, and so I don't know. I mean, I again, I I define the sort of nihilism in it really interesting because I don't think a lot of filmmakers explore that because most people don't want to see it. Most people want entertainment to be this distraction or this release or they don't want to be reminded about the fact that most of our lives are pretty stagnant and that we do engage in the same harmful or at the very least the same like stunting behaviors over and over again. Like nobody wants to be reminded that they don't want to pay the price of admission to go be reminded of that for two and a half hours in big screen. And so that's absolutely true, (laughs) Becky. I can tell you because when I got out of that theater, I saw it at the Green Hills movie theater and we were going to the parking lot and there was an elevator. So me and Will Fox got in that elevator and on the ride down, we were in there with other people who were in the theater that had just seen uh, this movie too. (laughs) And they 
hated yeah, it. Yeah, of course. They hated that right. movie. This movie uh, lost money in the theaters. Yeah. It, it lost yeah. about three, I, four million, I believe. I get it. But for me, and I say this like not really as a joke, I have experienced a lot of personal trauma, you know, a lot of like familial trauma. Um, so I understand that. And I think that what I find especially fascinating about the way that PTA used, again, sort of the backdrop of the origins of Dianetics movement, which became Scientology. But it could have been anything, right? Like it could have been more like LDS, you know what I mean? It could have been like Latter-day Saints. It could have been any sort of like modern religious movement. Um, The idea that when you have, you feel like you are completely alone and you feel like there's nothing to go back to and you feel like, you're just not really sure what to do, where to do it, how to do it. Somebody swoops in and they're like, this is the truth and this is the path and this is the way. And so how sort of like comforting that can be for people who have experienced like super intense trauma or super, in, you know, super painful things. And so I, I do really appreciate when filmmakers, especially really good filmmakers, are willing to sort of go out on a limb and accept that like this may not be a blockbuster this may not be the summer hit or whatever but yeah. that this movie is going to be really important to a few people you right. know it's and not going to be boogie nights it's, it's not, not going to define right a decade by right. any means in in, in cinema yeah but the people that do find this movie that go back to it for a second time ryan watch it again yeah i'm telling you yeah uh, like i touched on earlier like five of his movies i i had to watch a second time and usually that second time is when it all snaps into place for me and i realize oh this is clearly a masterpiece the master is up there with like firmly in like my top shelf paul thomas anderson films it's boogie nights uh there will be blood in this movie and they're all three neck and neck now Uh, after watching it again i just it's like man what a great movie i mean i think he really like the treatment that he gave those two actors i don't know that another director could have fostered that as well. I mean, I, I, re- I really feel like because, you know, I was listening to this interview with Paul Thomas Anderson, and he talks about how he doesn't feel like his job, like his obligation to his actors is not as a director, but as a writer. And so I appreciate that, again, as somebody who, you know, has acted a- along like a million years ago, but the idea that he's not micromanaging, he's like, you cast the right people, and you cast them for these roles, and you trust that the words that you've given them, that's going to be enough. Right, and, and you did the creative heavy lifting right, you know. by yourself while chain smoking staring at your <laughs> at your word processor right and then you let right. them take it to the next level sure. and and i think that because i think what we saw were the most organic inventions of those two people of philip seymour i mean philip seymour hoffman god when he died it was just i think that was just like such a devastation for 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 art you know because yeah. he's such a phenomenal actor but seeing him in that role and the way that he's able to like both contain himself but also make himself really large when he has to be the charisma he sort of exudes oh, i mean oh, it's so, so it's so dynamic it's so dynamic and i mean you want to be around that guy right like yeah you wanna, i want to hang out with him i want to hang out with lancaster just the way he talks to people you know right we right. fought against the day and yeah we won, like he seems that, so profound yes. everything out of his mouth he just seems like such an affable guy. He you seems know? like the kind of guy who could successfully start up a cult. <laughs> right. I want to follow that I guy. I want to follow. I, I want to be drink, around him. I want to drink that remarkable potion with him and smoke minty flavored cools yeah. with him. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, like, I get I get that, you know. Um, so, yeah, I, I appreciate that, that Paul Thomas Anderson was willing to make a movie that not a lot of people. <laughs> 
like. <laughs> because I liked it. If you're listening, Paul Thomas Anderson, I really liked it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this is absolutely one of my favorite movies of his, without a doubt. Without a doubt. I don't need a happy ending. No. You know? No. I don't. Either. I really don't. I don't. I don't. Like, I almost jumped up and cheered at the end of um, No Country for Old Men. <laughs> it's like yes yeah thank you for not yes that's great right yeah i mean i don't need it you know as long as like what i've seen has been cathartic i think that's the word i'm probably looking for is that it's a cathartic movie to watch and 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 catharsis doesn't necessarily mean that everything gets wrapped up in a bow it just means that you're able to sort of release emotions or at least commiserate with someone or something or a piece of art or you know whatever yeah, like if only for a while if only for a while that's, that's right temporary too. It, it, the idea that if somebody can write those characters and write those feelings and then beyond that an actor was able to read those words and portray emotion that you feel like you yourself relate to i mean that's that's religion to me, you know? Sure. I mean, truly. Like, I think that that's an incredible thing that human beings have devised. We came from, like, throwing poop against the wall, you know, in the in the jungles and caves. And then here we are making the master. Like, yeah. it's kind of insane, you know? It's pretty impressive. <laughs> it's really impressive. We went from Freddie Quill <laughs> we went, to Lancaster we Dodd. We went from Freddie Quill to Lancaster Dodd. Like... <laughs> It took a few billion years. I want like that evolutionary line of man, right? Where it's like Freddy Quell all hunched over and then like the ape and then the ape gets bigger until it's like Lancaster Dodd on the other side, you know? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) How about the perfect casting of um, Jesse Plemons as the son, Val? He looks so much like him, so much so that it's commented on at least twice in the movie when people meet him. Yeah, this is my son, Val. Oh, I see it. Yeah. They they do. I see it. They do. They do look a lot alike. He really I'd forgotten that he was in the movie. Yeah. I forgot that Rami Malek. Rami Malek. Yeah, that's right. This is the second (laughs) thing I remember seeing him in. He did such a good job in the Pacific. I don't know if you saw that, but it was a- I did uh, not. That was the first time I noticed him. It was a- um, Kind of like Band of Brothers. It was an HBO, Tom Hanks, Steven Spielberg produced yeah. miniseries about World War II. Yeah. But this oh, time, yeah, yeah. obviously, Sorry. in the Pacific Theater. Right. And he played a, uh, he just plays whatever ethnicity. Uh, apparently, Hollywood needs him to play. In Man. this movie, he was a Cajun, or uh, in, I, in the Pacific. Yeah. He played a, uh, a Cajun. Okay. Yeah. Creole. I, I believe he's. Not uh, Creole. No, Creole something different. Creole's different. He's just, I think he, they just call him Cajun. He's just like, you'll put a pepper in the pot. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. No, actually, he's a pretty depraved guy in, <laughs> okay. in this one. But yeah, he, he blew me away in that. I thought he was fantastic. And I didn't see him for a good long while until The Master. And I remembered him. And then it wasn't until, I think, Mr. Robot. So he does he does some brilliant acting, although his his part is, you know, he's, he's a supporting actor. But he, he he does some brilliant acting, too. That scene, especially where at the dinner table and it's he, himself and his wife, who's Dodd's daughter, Dodd mm-hmm. and then Amy and Adams. Yeah. And, and you see he's about to basically tattle on Freddie, right? And to say, like, I think this guy's no good. Like, I think this just guy. And, and you see this kind of, like, self-satisfied kind of smile come across his face. And then he kind of, like, with the anticipation of what he's about to say and, like, and I kind of love that. And then he kind of stuffs it down and then he takes on a more serious face. And because who hasn't felt that satisfaction of like tattling on somebody mm-hmm. that you don't, you know, or, or or trying to turn people against somebody yeah. that you don't like, you know? Yeah. And 
I think that that was a cool, like a cool little thing that he did there, you know? Yeah, he was great in that movie. What he about, let's, let's talk, I don't, I never understood this. Let's talk about this for a moment. His wife, which was Lancaster's daughter. Daughter. Yes. She clearly was like feeling up. Yes. Freddie. He never, oh, yeah. ex- he never, ex- Freddie never expressed any interest in her romantically or sexually. Right. Um, she did towards him. Mm-hmm. And then she just turns it around at the dinner table and says that I think Freddie's in love with well, me. Well, and, because then, here's the deal is I think she felt snubbed by him. Sure. So I okay. think that she, I think in order to sort of like either make herself feel better or to kind of absolve herself of any guilt that she may have felt or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, I think that that's, and that's kind of like a, I don't know, common thing. I feel like, you okay. know, people get snubbed and they're like, I don't know. He's in love with me. I just felt like that was going to go somewhere. <laughs> no, but it didn't. It went it nowhere. It didn't. Okay. And it just gave okay. her a little, maybe it was just there for motivation for the dinner table scene. Yeah, perhaps, uh-huh. perhaps so. Are we done? I think we're done. Yeah, I think we did it. So you feel good? Yeah. Do you feel good? I do. Do you I feel do. like we covered all the big stuff? I think we covered it all. Okay. Becky, this was fun. It was really fun. Thanks, Thanks for, for having coming. me, Jason. Thank you for coming. I hope that I um, did well, even though I don't really know a lot about film. No, you did great. Okay. You did great. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. Yeah. All right. Cool. You. I hope you keep in my Merkin jokes, though. Those are key. Those are going to stay. <laughs> And that does it for another episode. Thank you so much for listening and supporting the podcast. Your kind DMs and words of encouragement mean an awful lot to me, and I would be remiss if I did not mention that. Please leave us a review wherever you get your podcast, and don't forget to subscribe to the show so that you don't miss a single episode. Filmography Club is produced in Nashville, Tennessee by the ever-diligent folks at We Own This Town, a podcast network recently voted Best Podcast Network by the good citizens of Nashville, though my first episode was still in the edit when that distinction was granted, so I can claim no credit for that. Be sure to check out the other We Own This Town podcasts. I'd like to thank my guest, Miss Becky Delius, Michael Eads, Will Fox, and Ross Warner. I'm Jason Cavanis. Thanks for listening. I graduated and I was here in Nashville and I was looking for a job and it was it was like at that point where you're like I have to find a real job because I am poor and I don't want to be poor anymore and so I was kind of like back in those days in the mid aughts I was driving around you know hoping to put my resume into places and I passed so the Scientology Celebrity Center which is now on 8th Avenue used to be over on Music Row and I lived in an apartment very close to Music Row so they had this huge sign out front that was like receptionist needed or hiring receptionist. I'm like, perfect. I can do that. And at that time, I really didn't know anything about Scientology. I didn't know, you know, the whole reputation. Like I'd heard of them, but I, I didn't really like know that much sure. about it. So I go in, hey, I'm here to apply for the receptionist position. Oh, that's perfect. I did the whole personality test. I'm there for like three hours. I take a tour of the building. I got to see, the, you know, they every Scientology center has L. Ron Hubbard's office for him so that when he returns, he can just go straight back to business, right? So I do the whole thing. I'm at this point like, 
okay, cool. So am I hired or like, what's the deal? What's the wage? And they're like, oh, no, we're all volunteers here. You know, this is a volunteer. And I was just like, y'all motherfuckers. Yeah. And so I was like, all right, skirt, skirt. And I just like left. And they called me for like weeks afterwards. And I had my phone had entered as like Scientologist exclamation point, exclamation point to be like, do not answer this phone. Like I'm going to answer Sally Mae calling me before I'm going to (laughs) answer this call, you know? And so it's just like, do not. And they would call me like, oh, hey, you know, this is Rob from the Scientology Center. You know, I just wanted to like say, you know, we had a really great meeting with you. We'd love it if you could come back in and get some more information. I'm just like... No, you got to pay me. 